Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my frequent co-host, Proceedings Magazine's Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. And we're in Bill Hamlet's office, which we'll call Studio D uh, today, because we have some construction going on next to Studio C. Also, we'll just let the audience know that we've upgraded our equipment here. Um, And so we have these really Gucci uh, mics now, and so they pick up everything. Um, So hopefully this is a better audio experience for the audience, et cetera. So uh, I just wanted to point out, as we discuss the value proposition of being a member of the Naval Institute, one of the things we tout often is access to the digital archives of proceedings from 1874 till now. So I was just experimenting yesterday uh, with uh, one of the search terms in in the archives, and I typed in Venezuela. And uh, let let me uh, get this right here. But up came this article from 2009, written by, stand by, uh, Commander Pat Patterson, which was in the May of 2009 issue, titled Our Waning Influence to the South. And it's a treatise. This guy presaged what is happening now and what we're dealing with now. So if you are a member, I just entreat you to use this functionality to its full capability, like like I'm talking about. And specifically, uh, if you want to get the gouge on what's happening in Venezuela now from a naval point of view, and a military point of view, I refer you to uh, Commander Patterson's article from May of 2009 called Our Waning Influence to the South. It's very cool. Absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So uh, today we're lucky to have our guest in the studio with us. Often uh, we have phone-ins and not too often uh, do we have our guest in in the uh, studio with us in Beach Hall here. Um, thanks for braving the weather, although it's uh, not really bad yet, but it's supposed to get bad, I guess, is what I'm hearing. I mean, schools are letting out early, and right now it's just drizzled, but I guess we're getting some snow uh, overnight. Uh, but uh, thank our guest. Uh, so this is actually, we're going back to the Wayback Machine here, all the way back to December, the December issue of Proceedings. In an article titled, Naval Intelligence's Lost Decade, the author is Commander Wolf Melbourne, and he's here with us today. Hello, Wolf. Hi. Uh, glad to be here. Got to be a little closer oh, to that. Hi. Uh, glad to be here. Um, I live in uh, London, England. I've grown really accustomed to sort of sun and warmth, so I, uh, I am not fitting in <laughs> You well live here. in London, England. I do. I'm, a, I'm in a personnel exchange program uh, at the Ministry of Defense and uh, the UK's Defense Intelligence. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, you kick this thing off with a... Uh, a Cortez reference, and you you quote, uh, he says, we've burned the boats, there's no going back, as a way to motivate his troops to uh, to, to uh, conquer foreign lands. Um, and you actually mentioned that uh, then-CNO Admiral Ruff had used this when he was describing um, the uh, what was then called the Information Dominance Corps, now Information Warfare Community, um, but you say we've fallen short just just a bit in terms of, uh, and you use this Cortez analogy, you know, about three quarters of the way through the, the piece to good effect. So what do you mean in terms of 
burn the boats, but that's about all we've done so far. We haven't moved inland. What are you specifically talking about? So, I mean, to use the uh, the, the metaphor, um, you know, that wasn't the only thing that Cortez did to get his men um, onto their objective to um, to defeat the the Aztec Empire. There was other things that they had to do. They had to they had to innovate. Uh, they had to attract allies and, and people to the cause, um, and and use sort of their superior tactics to to achieve those objectives. So the burning of the boats was just sort of the motivation um, that you know there was no alternative but to to move forward. Um, and the analogy to the to the information warfare community is. We certainly burned the boats, um, but we haven't quite done the things that we we need to do to get to where we said we were, where we're going to sort of transform uh, how we use and exploit information to um, to meet our objectives. So you have a nice uh, uh, sort of thing that tees it up here. The past decade has witnessed an emergence of mass digitization, artificial intelligence, robotics, rapid technological change, the big data era. Yet naval intelligence persists in using the same tools, people, and tradecraft as in 2009. Yeah, I, I, I actually could have been probably even even um, worse than that. I mean, it just happened to be that the anniversary occurred at uh, the point I was sort of writing and thinking about it. But I usually could have said when I joined the Navy back in 1998, um, you know, you just sit at you sit at my desk and I look at the tools that I have and, and how I go about my job as a, as a naval intelligence professional. It hasn't largely has not changed since since 1998. I'm still using Microsoft Office products. I'm still doing Internet Explorer, um, you know, web searches. I'm primarily communicating with other naval intelligence professionals via email. Um, not a lot has changed in 20 years, um, and that's sort of the point of the article. Is is what what did we 10 years ago we said we were going to change? I'm still waiting for the change. The 10 years is an, is very interesting for listeners who don't. Just to remind the listeners. So the Information Dominance Corps was created 10 years ago, and now is the Information Working Community, as Ward mentioned. And so this is an opportunity, and, and many are taking this opportunity, I should say, to kind of reflect back and take stock of where we are, uh, what we've achieved, what the Navy's achieved, what, what it hasn't achieved. Um, is the direction and the organization the right one um, going forward? This article, uh, Wolf, I, I – Took that most most of you most you were targeting mostly the the inability or the um, failure of naval intelligence to incorporate information technology, cutting edge technology to do analytical work, which is very interesting. I had command of a large analytical center once, and uh, I had some insight into some of the initiatives in that in that field. Um, it was interesting, but often expensive, niche, and many of it. Many of the proposals, in my judgment, didn't live up to the billing, so to speak. So can you maybe bring out a few examples of what you would like to see uh, naval intelligence adopt uh, for the future? So let me first you know, preface this that I'm not a, any sort of data scientist. I'm, I'm, I'm not a computer geek. Um, I read a couple of books and, and, and stayed at a, at, a, at a Marriott last night. <laughs> but the, the character of the information domain has, has clearly changed. Um, when you have the ability for commercial corporations to predict somebody becoming pregnant, um, you know, without without any other knowledge than than sort of what they searched for in Google or or, or what they've purchased, um, that gives you a sense of the power uh, of what data uh, can do for you. Now, as far as the expense, you know, ten years ago, 
you know, the cost of a server or a terabyte of data, um, you know, was 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 a good bit more expensive than than today. But you know, the trend lines are all things are much cheaper now. Um, the commercial applications are much cheaper. Um, but at the end of the day, even though these things are cheaper, they may still be expensive in, in aggregate. Um, the cost of missing the boat on on this change in the information domain um, is well worth the cost. Um, if we continue to sort of, you know, as the national um, defense strategy speaks to, we cannot fight tomorrow's wars with, with yesterday's technology. Um, and I, I deeply feel that, at least in naval intelligence, we are we are still using yesterday's technology um, and, and thinking that we can fight tomorrow's wars with it um, is, is not good business. You mentioned Microsoft a few minutes ago, and you have a nice Bill Gates quote here. You talk about contention there is, quote, always an overestimation of change in the next two years and an underestimation of it in the next 10 years. I think that's an interesting sort of phenomenon. So you say that's kind of what's happening in the naval intelligence world. So how, how so? Well, so, I mean, so, you know, the, the impetus for some sort of change in adaption to information 10 years ago w was spot on. You know, the idea that information um, was going to be a critical component uh, for military victory, spot on. Um, the idea, though, that 10 years from now, things wouldn't have changed that much, that we definitely sort of underestimated is how much it would change to the point where information now can influence elections, um, can be part of a campaign, um, uh, you know, with real, real troops and real, real equipment, and to look at Crimea and, and Russia, um, we really underestimated what information you can do for you in meeting uh, military objectives uh, in ten years. So naval intelligence doesn't exist in a vacuum; it's a part of a larger defense intelligence community, and uh, beyond that, part of the overall United States intelligence community. So, in your uh, view, have you seen other services um, or other entities, agencies doing certain things in the technology field regarding analysis that is uh, puts more of a uh, well, it, it shows clear more clearly that that the naval intelligence is behind these other places, or is this a problem you think is endemic across the intelligence community? I, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, speak for for the other services or, or for the joint intel community, but I mean, those that I've met and talked to, um, and when I've been exposed to, I I, I suspect that it, it is probably endemic. Um, I, I also now work for um, for for a foreign intelligence organization, um, and they suffer from some of the same issues as well. Um, so I, I do think this is widespread and not just um, a naval intelligence problem. But at me, as as part of the profession, I, I, I care deeply about the naval intelligence portion of it and attempting to find a solution to it. Um, but we're, we're not alone. Yeah, so how are the Brits doing over there with their intelligence? I know it was uh, something that was, at least in my experience several years ago with them, that was uh, something they felt was uh, severely under-resourced, uh, not just for their Navy, but also their um, their larger DI community. Where, where, where is it today, just in your judgment? I mean, uh, I mean, they're, they're a wonderful organization to work for. Um, been more than welcoming for me as a, as a foreigner coming in to work for them. Um, you know, they operate though at a much smaller scale than 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 U.S. naval intelligence. Um, sort of look at, you know, I'm, I'm a China watcher. Um, you know, in the U.S. side of the house, you could probably count the number of China watchers in the thousands. Whereas in in in, in DI, you know, we're really we honestly we're talking about a handful. Um, so that gives you a sense of the, of the scale. So they definitely punch well above their weight. Um, and I'll be honest, some of their analog products I would I would take uh, anywhere within the Five Eyes community because um, uh, it's just it's this that good. 
Yeah. So you also say during the past decade, some in naval intelligence seem to have concluded that what is needed most is more information, not more and better trained people. Um, so is that sort of the, the matrix, either more information or more people? Is that sort of what it comes down to? And if so, where, where should we uh, concentrate? Yeah, I mean, so that sort of really starts to speak to the heart of, of the article um, is that, you know, really the only change that one can sort of really concretely observe from over the course of 10 years is the sheer amount of information. And the amount of information that's coming into an intelligence center from 10 years ago is, is you know, it, it's, it's factors um, uh, of what it was uh, 10 years ago. Um, but what has not changed is what we expect of the person. You know, we are still um, we're still bringing in the same types of individuals. We're still sending them basically through the same curriculum um, at Niobic, which is our, our intelligence basic uh, course. Um, and and that's just the, the character of the domain has changed. We need to sort of change the character uh, of the naval intelligence professional at the same time. You, you talk about um, sort of like metrics analysis and and, and having more data awareness of who's using the intelligence products. That's sort of an interesting take. Um, it's not just the creation of data, but you want the intelligence and the analysts to know who, to be aware of who's using these products more to a greater degree. Yeah, great. I mean, I was actually just at, at the Office of Naval Intelligence uh, today um, speaking to some advanced um, analytic um, individuals and, and data scientists. And it was one of my questions was, is how much do we know about our own data? Um, and that's meaning who's using your data right. from okay. from from you know which other organizations what other people uh, are using the actual products of O and I um, um, and sort of get a sense of the value the usefulness um, there's you know I'm, I'm sure that O and I products provide a lot of value but in today's day and age we have the the tools and um, the uh, the algorithms to sort of figure this sort of stuff out. We've seen it in commercial entities. Um, so g- we, give give me a layman's example of what you're talking about. So take what so is something O and I creates that is used and 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 so forth. And how would who would use it? So I mean, so so O and I produces. You know, I mean, it, it runs the gamut. Um, you know, but one example, um, you know, would be let's say an adversary does you know um, an exercise. They'll produce a report that says the adversary was able to do. X, Y, and Z, we've never seen that before, or it fits the line, or we feel like maybe, you know, they're not doing as well as we assessed, but some sort of some basic judgment on how well an adversary does their job. So that product goes out. Who reads it? Who cites it? Who uses it? Where does it go once it's posted on the website? That there's not a lot of knowledge about what happens to that product after it goes out. And I think, you know, to the detriment of both the individual that created it, but also to the organization that, you know, we could potentially be making a better product. We could be focusing on, on a different a different subject area if these are not of interest to anybody else except for folks at ONI. Um, so there's a lot of information that's just sort of left on uh, – or knowledge has been left sort of uh, to fall through the cracks um, when, again, you know, a company like a Netflix um, or Amazon quickly knows who's using their products, quickly understands which works, what doesn't work, and is constantly improving the product they're producing for their customer. But I also want – I want to shift gears slightly here to talk about – and maybe I misunderstood what, what I read, but – because you you talk about uh, the Kasparov example and the um, advances they've made in, in with the artificial intelligence in chess and of course the game Go. Um, I don't know how to play Go. Um, I'm very bad at chess, but I can appreciate these. And these these are examples that are t- trotted out constantly by uh, AI proponents and and where the future is. And 
going back to my time in, in the business and even today, I always think about um, how does it apply to of a more subjective process of human analysis? I mean, how what can the uh, AI do? And we don't know for sure what in the future it can do. But when it comes to subjectively analyzing a, um, a target in the intelligence business, what we call a target or a problem um, that involves, you know, a, a, a lot or a little uh, amount of information, depending on the case may be, from various sources, and and, and going through this process of, of assigning value and weight to d- different things and, and coming up with a an assessment uh, with a level of confidence. And I know I'm getting a little long-winded here. I think back to, and not to take this too far down on philosophical rat hole, but the um, 1990 Scientific American article by John Searle. John Searle's a um, philosopher from Berkeley who wrote a seminal article called Is the Human Brain a Computer? Um, if, and no one's read it or anyone's not read it. It's a, it's a great read, very readable. Um, and in um, still his challenge in that article to the artificial intelligence uh, world uh, is valid today and I think it's very applicable to uh, what we well, I used to do and you do now in in the intelligence business and in trying to understand what you can automate and what you simply cannot great point um, yeah I, I not familiar with the article um, but you know what I would hope it would conclude with is is, is, is clearly not right because what a computer does not do is is, is give you more questions. Right, computers give you answers, or they can give you, you know, answers. Um, the human mind can come up with an additional question, and I think that's where, as naval intelligence professionals, we sort of really provide the most value added is our ability to ask the right question. Because um, there's really three pieces to being able to do that really well. And then in the article, I talk about you know there is the tech piece. We can't get away from technology. So I don't want this article to come across as 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 somehow technology is, is, is worthless in, in, in this endeavor. It's not. It's just not the most important piece. You also have, which is you know, what we sort of seem to have seen over the past 10 years, is really emphasis on the technology and the sensors and getting more and more information. The second piece is the process. This is you know, where, where I sort of made that relation to um, um, tradecraft for in, in intelligence speak. Um, that there's a process by which we sort of transform information into something usable, what I would for, refer to as knowledge to be given to, the, to a commander making an operational decision. Um, and then the last one is the human themselves, um, and that, that that's important, that 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 individual is somebody that has the ability to you know think critically, look at information, and again transform that into knowledge. So, um, I think what the human is struggling with right now is is he or she is is inundated with information, drowning in information um, is, is a term you you often hear. Um, using outdated processes to sort of you know process all that information, and it's really questionable whether or not we're actually producing you know usable knowledge or at least to the best of our ability because we're so we're spending so much of our human you know cognitive bandwidth dealing with just mere information um so if we could you know do a better job of filtering search results have algorithms that sort of produce more relevant data that way there's a lot less information that the humans have into um uh, to transform into knowledge you'll end up getting a a, a much better product because at the end of the day what we're trying to get is knowledge to the point of decision by an operational commander not just pump more information into the commander's head you really want to do something that's that's usable um that that helps make the uh, the most effective decision so put the analysts out there in, in naval intelligence land at ease that their jobs aren't going to go away anytime soon or or uh, they're going to be replaced by a, by an algorithm. No, I mean, definitely not. I mean, and, and 
that's a, a point that should be sort of brought out harder in the article is is it, the human is just that much more important. Um, and again, I speak to the we have yet to uncover a computer, an AI, a machine that can learn that is asking better questions. That is still a very human um, thing to do, and it will be just that much more important that humans are able to do that. You know, the the, the better that machines can process all the you know, the minutia, the, 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 the noise, so, you know, to sort of use Nate Silver's signal noise metaphor, um, that can sort of quickly filter out the noise and give you a better chance of finding the signal. Um, that, that's not, the human's not going away in that equation. Um, the human's that much more important um, in that equation. You know, one of the ways it was described to me many times, and, and, and I think it's partly right, although not entirely right, like, like a lot of these, uh, is that the, the automation of of analysis it can go to a uh, it can take you to a to a limit and you're you're starting the analyst at a at a different point in the continuum of analysis further up the the food chain or downstream however whatever metaphor you'd like to use and again i think that's partly right but it comes it, it also relies on a thing what i call is trust analysts still need to trust that the that the starting point they've been handed by the machine or the machines or the um, artificial intelligence is is the correct place, and they don't have to um, uh, doubt what they what they've been given, and that has always seemed to me a, a very big challenge. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I, my argument would be is you, you gain that trust through experience and experimentation. Um, you know, there's sort of the piece there towards the end of the article where you know that sort of human machine pairing. You need to begin to experiment. You know, I don't have the answer of what is the right pairing. I don't, I don't know if I have the, the right idea of what is the right process, but now is the time to experiment and trial and error it um, to the point where your average analyst is confident and does trust the process and does trust, trust the information that's coming in um, to the point where they can just focus on the important piece, which is the knowledge. So what is it we need? Is there enough money in the acquisition piece of the intelligence community? <laughs> is there enough manpower coming through the pipeline if you had, to, if you could be CNO for a day, where where would you uh, focus in terms of the the next two to ten years of the Navy intelligence community? Uh, as much as I'd love to be CNO for a day, I, actually to answer the question, all I need to be is is, is just the director of naval intelligence. Um, I think we need to stop figuring out how to fit into the information warfare community a little less. How do we fit into the information warfare community and a bit more about what it means to be naval intelligence professionals? Um, I think a focus on what are some of the core competencies and the core you know, missions of naval intelligence, a little bit more focus on, on, on those questions, um, I think will begin to drive us to the answers that, that, that are there. So is this a career path tweak? What, 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 what are the next steps with respect to what you've just said? I, I mean, I'm, you know. Less all jointness. Well, um, I, no, I, I don't think. What, what do we I, do? I, I'm not advocating for any sort of reorg. I'm not re advocating for increased budget. I don't think there's anything in 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 this that requires us to do anything more than than re -pri -pri uh, prioritize. Um, you know what's important to us, uh, and I feel like we've spent the past ten years worried about the administrivia of becoming part uh, of a larger. Um, information warfare community and the bureaucracy that's involved. And I don't want to, you know, that, that had its place. Um, but I think it's now time to figure out what does it mean to be naval intelligence professionals? That needs to be a bit more, uh, get a bit of higher priority um, uh, at the highest, you know, in the, in the leadership positions of naval intelligence. I don't think it will require more money. I don't think it requires new career paths. Um, I think it's just the emphasis um, that, that, that technology doesn't hold the answer. It's still the individual. 
Um, and if, as long as we keep the eyeballs on the, the person, that, that human analyst that becomes a naval intelligence professional, um, we'll find these answers. Um, but it's about making that a priority um, um, in, our, in our profession. And from your, your time here, and, and thank you for being with us in person, which just always makes it uh, easier and more enjoyable to do these podcasts. But from your, from your brief time here at O&I, and I'm not going to get into exactly what was going on there because I'm not sure what it was, but, uh, it, but it was – were you encouraged that naval intelligence is um, moving in the direction that you advocate in the article? Well, I mean, let me first off say that I mean, part of the reason why I'm here is, is, is Admiral Sharp read the article. Um, and, and he thought it um, was, was a, a good ca- a contribution to the conversation, and he asked me to come over um, and see a lot of what's happening um, in the Office of Naval Intelligence when it comes to emerging technology and, and naval intelligence. So, I mean, just being able to, you know, to think that somebody like, like an Admiral Sharp um, is open enough to hear from a commander um, about subjects like this, that's a, obviously yeah, that's, a, great. That's, that's a great condition to, yes. to, to, to work under, um, you know. I, and, but in sort of being, you know, being real for a second, I think we're still at that point where we know we have a problem. You know, you've got and it is a necessary step, um, but we're still we're still running up against some of the same old um, challenges that we have been for the past decade. Where you know you're, we are butting against interagency bureaucracy. We are you know we are fighting against and challenged by the larger IC and the standards of of different agencies, um, but. You know, it, it's, it's, this is the time to fix it. Um, it's not when we're in the middle of, of a great power conflict. Um, it's now um, that we do that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think we, we, we do, and we, we find our way to do it. We, the larger, you know, U.S. military, the Navy, um, it's not always f- fun, and it's difficult and frustrating. And there's, a, there's always great challenges in the technology, information technology business, because you, you have to scale it up a, a Ultimately, a scale up a new product, a new capability, and it's expensive, and 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 that's 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 what's so difficult about it um, compared to the commercial world. So, when are you headed back to London uh, on Thursday? Okay. So, how much longer do you have on in this tour? I'm about halfway through, so three year tour, um, one and a half. Years where ago. where are you living? Right in the Central city, Central London. Yeah, I mean, yeah. For, for folks out like there, Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> it's it's not too far from me. Um, it's about forty minutes door to door right now, right on the uh, the tube, the oh, okay. underground. Okay, um, but yeah, central London. Um, you know, the housing allowance covers living in the middle of the city, which Dang. is which is great. Yeah. So, are you married with kids or what? Married with kids. That's uh, what a blast. How old are your kids? Uh, they're twelve, going on thirteen. Uh, twins. Oh, you have twins. Do, okay. Yeah. You know, I lived in Holland for three years when I was about that age. It's the perfect age to live outside the United States. Yep. Great, they're Good stuff. It. Yeah, that's one of my favorite top five cities in the world, London, yep. for sure. And I mean, I'll put a, to put a plug in for the personnel exchange program. There, there are not that many naval intelligence billets, um, but the ones that we have are 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 just amazing opportunities from both a personal and a professional sense. But the value added you get by working within an, an allies intelligence system just provides a lot of dividends for further on in your career so you know to sort of put a plug out i mean i don't really need to put a plug out to come live and work in london um it's not well you uh, never know people may not be aware that it's a good deal <laughs> brexit uh, brexit scaring people away yeah brexit. <laughs> i don't think so the I'm new working. mary poppins is scaring people away uh, almost every other month i'm getting an email asking about when am i leaving so i can uh, you know, <laughs> take the job so no I'm, i don't think anybody's fearing brexit about taking you know coming in to, uh, to relieve me in a year and a half yeah great fantastic 
Commander Wolf Melbourne is our guest. His article was in the December issue of Proceedings, Naval Intelligence's Lost Decade. Wolf, thanks for coming in to uh, join us here in Beach Hall and being our guest on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Wolf. All right, that'll do it for this week's show. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.